in America each year, 12 million people are affected in some way from a medical misdiagnosis. So 12 million people each year go to the doctor with a problem, and the doctor misdiagnoses the problem, and the patient is affected by it. Around 40 to 80,000 of those pass away due to complications related to a misdiagnosis. Now, this is not, uh, this is not to deter us from go to, going to the doctor. That's, that's not the point of this introduction. In fact, the majority of people rightly uh, are diagnosed throughout the year, and they go on to, to live healthy lives, and they get the help that they need. And yet, sadly, this is actually to highlight how detrimental a misdiagnosis can be. A patient goes to the doctor in great need of help, and what's believed to be the problem is actually a different problem altogether. And the treatment that's prescribed doesn't bring healing, it just further exacerbates the issue and the situation, bringing about greater harm and pain. And in our passage this afternoon, we see a disabled man in a helpless situation. And yet what he wrongly believes to be his greatest problem, right, really isn't actually his problem. In fact, the Lord unexpectedly overturns what he believes to be his greatest problem. Rather than just remaining helpless, though, his life now serves as a marker of great hope because God has actually revealed his greatest need and is not misdiagnosed. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And while you're turning there, I want to get us caught up uh, in the text and how we have now come to Acts chapter 3. So far in the book of Acts, we've seen that a new era in salvation history has begun. And it's begun because Jesus has ascended the throne of David in heaven. He's poured out the Holy Spirit on his people, and now he has created, the Holy Spirit has created a new people of God. That is the church, as we've seen in the past couple of weeks. If Acts chapters 1 and 2 serve as the book's introduction, Acts chapters 3 through 7 really build on the expectations that are set in that introduction. Expectations that have big implications for the temple and its leaders, as we're going to see. And we're going to see really in chapter 2, verse 46, all the way to chapter 5, the actions within the temple, so to speak, are what surround this narrative and really bookend this narrative. And so we're going to be addressing really the temple and the temple's leaders eventually. But first, we come to this event this morning, or this afternoon. I caught myself. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and we saw that this new community of the king was a converted community. It was a committed community. It was a caring community, and it was a compelling community. And now, as we transition into Acts chapter 3, Luke focuses our attention on a specific example of this first church's impact on the surrounding community. That's what he's doing. He's focusing our attention on one specific example. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right, that's now starting to get fleshed out. It's starting to take shape in Jerusalem as the people of God take part in the mission of God in the power of the Spirit of God. And like chapter 2, Acts 3 and 4 begins with what? It begins with an event. And then there's an explanation of that event. And at the end, there's a summary of that community life together. The exact same kind of format 
from chapter 2 in chapters 3 and 4. So let's read Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 together. Just follow along as I listen, as I read, and as you listen. Man. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. And at once, his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. I think the main idea of this glorious passage is this. The hope of new life, the hope of new life is found in the name of our heavenly Lord. The hope of new life is found in the name of our heavenly Lord. I think that's the the main idea. And our text really highlights this in two primary ways. By focusing our attention on the man's helplessness, that is the man's helpless situation, And then as well, by focusing on our attention on this sign that is full of hope, this miracle or this sign that is full of hope. And so point number one is a helpless situation. We're going to look at that in verses one through five, a helpless situation. And then point number two, we're going to consider a hopeful sign, a hopeful sign in verses six through ten. So point number one, a helpless situation, verses one through five. In Acts chapter two, verse 43, we're given this description of the early church. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. In our passage, Luke focuses on on one of these signs as a description of, of the early church's impact on the surrounding community. And so what he's doing right here is he is tightly linking our passage in Acts 3, 1 through 10, to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, right? These are not just random passages. Luke knows exactly what he is doing in forming this narrative, in forming this story. And in verses 1 and 2, Luke really sets the stage of this story for us. Peter and John go up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Last week, we learned that the early church devoted themselves to the prayers. Praying in the temple probably was one of those things, right? We do see an element of that that's still going on within the church, but that's soon to split, 
They're soon to split with that very quickly. And one of the most popular times designated for prayer was at three in the afternoon, right? Three times normally uh, were given to prayer during the day where people would go up to the temple to pray. One was at 9 a.m., the other was at 3 p.m., the other one was at dusk. Three in the afternoon was the most popular time. And so this note is important because it shows really the public nature of this man's healing. He wasn't healed in a corner. It was done out in the open. And so you can imagine just throngs of people making their way up to the temple. And yet in the busyness of this crowd, right, people focused on going to the temple, in the busyness of this crowd is this lame beggar. Now, by speaking of this man being lame, that doesn't mean that this man was somehow dull or uninspiring. That's not what this is getting at. That's not what lame means in the text. It means that he could not walk. That's what lame is getting at. He couldn't walk. And notice the severity of his condition in verse 2. It says that he was lame from birth. Literally, he was lame from his mother's womb in the text. This man wasn't in some accident that caused this condition. We're not even told that, that this was the cause of somebody else's sin. This was the repercussion of somebody's sin. He'd been like this his whole life. To make things worse, we learn in chapter 4, verse 22, that he was over the age of 40, highlighting the magnitude of this condition. Friends, imagine yourself not being able to walk for over 40 years, and all you've ever known is not being able to walk. This is a dire situation for this guy. He is helpless. All you've ever known, your entire existence, right? You've never felt your feet be able to hit the pavement and hold yourself up. You've never been able to run into the arms of your parents. You've never been able to climb and jump over a wall with all your other friends. He doesn't know what that's like. That does not exist for this lame beggar. And it didn't stop there. He relied on others to get where he wanted to go. Look at that in verse 2. It says that he had to be carried to the temple gate, not just once, not just this time, each day. Every day, somebody was carrying him to the temple, ga- to the temple gate so he could beg. Because he couldn't walk, he probably couldn't get a job and make money to provide for himself which is why he had to beg for money from those entering the temple in verse 3. He is physically and economically distute. Notice his location in verse 2. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful. No doubt this was smart on his part because it was a prominent gate during the time of day when the most people were going to be around. So he's a smart guy. He knows when to try to make his money. The height of the day, 3 o'clock, where the most people are going to be around. At one of the most prominent gates. It was a beautiful gate. And one of the most prominent gates in the area, around the temple. And for Jews, giving money to the poor was a virtuous act. So this man knew what he was doing when he was seeking to beg. Yet his situation right here, his location, further drives home his situation. 
His location drives home his situation. It's repeated throughout the passage. I wonder if you noticed this. It's repeated throughout the passage that everyone else is doing what? What is everybody else doing? They're all going up to the temple. Everybody's entering the temple. In verse 3, John and Peter are about to enter the temple. Not for this guy. Everyone else is able to enter the temple except for this no-named, lame beggar sitting outside the temple. The gate has a name for crying out loud, and the man has no name. He is a lame beggar on the outside. In the Old Testament, the law prohibited offering lame or disabled animal sacrifices. Those who were disabled or lame were prohibited from serving uh, as priests Both of those things really contributed to the stereotype in Israelite culture that the lame were despised. We see a a hint of that in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And so the temple was the place where God actually dwelt among his people. It's where his people went to go and worship God. This man was on the outside, unable to enter to worship. He was an outcast in every sense of the word. He was physically, economically, socially, spiritually destitute. He couldn't work his way out of a situation. He couldn't just go get surgery and just repair his feet. He was utterly helpless. Helpless. What hope, honestly, does he have to get out of his situation? Now, for many, it may be hard to resonate with this guy. It's going to be hard for many of us to resonate with him. Few, if any of us, have experienced such dire circumstances where there is no way out and there is really no way up for us. And so we may be tempted to read a passage like this and think, well, my life's really not that bad. I don't have the kinds of needs that he has. Overall, my situation's okay. I'm just thankful I'm not like this poor guy. However, it's one thing to sympathize with this guy. It's another thing to identify with him. It's one thing to sympathize. It's another to identify. We shouldn't read this text and think that it doesn't have anything to do with us. Because it's not our situation. That's not how we should read the text. Luke is using this literal story to illustrate and point us to our own need. Understand, this isn't to minimize the man's situation. Right? We're not minimizing his situation. That's a dire situation. But it is to use it to show us our own situation and our own condition. That's what Luke is getting at. The first thing that the lame beggar shows us is our helpless situation. It shows us our own situation. Friends, all of us are the lame beggar. We are all the lame beggar before God. It doesn't matter how financially, physically, materially successful, stable, and satisfied you are in this life. It doesn't matter. It's often those very things that actually end up blinding us from seeing that we do have a great need. Right? Think about our area of the state. It's one of the most prominent, well-off areas of the state, if we're being honest. And many, whenever we're seeking to minister to those within our own community, they're not really going to see their need for Jesus at all. 
Because those very things, right, thinking that everything is just going swimmingly, those very things are actually the things that really blind us from being able to see our greatest need. Luke is wanting to use this man to show us what our greatest need is. It's to show us our greatest need. And so, friend, what might be blinding you from seeing your greatest need? Is it the fact that you have a stable job, a happy family, or that you've got all the relationships that you could ask for, right? All the fun, the entertainment, the excitement that come with those relationships. Do you, do you have all those things? Overall, you're doing fairly well. But might those things actually be blinding you to see your greatest need? It's one thing to be grateful to God for these things. That's one thing. It's another when we idolize them so that they blind us from seeing our need for Christ daily. Often, we don't think that we're helpless because comparatively to the lame man, we seem to be doing just fine. In the world's eyes, we're okay. But to believe this is actually to miss the point of the text. It's to misunderstand our relationship to God. To think that everything on a horizontal level is totally fine is to actually just miss our relationship actually to God in our greatest need. Although we may not know what it feels like to be physically lame and helpless, we all come into this world spiritually lame and helpless. All of us have voluntarily rebelled against our infinitely holy and righteous God. We have brought sin into the world. And now the whole world bears the effects of sin. We have natural disasters. We have a man born lame from what? From birth. It wasn't because of anything that he did. He was born lame from birth. Why? Because we live in a fallen world as a result of sin. Sin that affects our relationships. It affects our relationship with God. It, reflects, it affects our relationships with one another. It affects within us. It affects our life within. And yet we're all sinners by choice. Before God, we stand guilty of our sin without excuse and we deserve eternal punishment. For our sin. Our sin is as serious as the one we ultimately commit it against. Our sin is as serious as the one that we ultimately commit it against. It bears an infinite cost because it's, it's committed against an infinitely holy and righteous God. That's how serious our sin is. And if that's not bad enough, our whole being is actually corrupted by our sin, so that we are unable to love God, to believe the gospel, and to be saved. In our sinful state, we are spiritually helpless and lame, unable to save ourselves. We are spiritual outcasts, sitting and begging outside of the gate in our sin. This is the condition and the situation of all without a relationship with Jesus. The lame beggar shows us our helpless situation and how badly we need to be delivered from it. Friend, do you view your situation outside of Christ the way that God views your situation? Is that how you view your, your sin? Is that how you view your situation? How might that affect how you understand what your greatest need in life actually is? 
How might that change how you view other needs in your life as they arise in the grand scheme of things? Sadly, we often miss our greatest need because we misdiagnose the problem. Given everything this man is going through, we get a window into what he believes he needs most. Look at verse 3. Peter and John were about to enter the temple, and it says that he asked for money. Certainly money was an issue. He needed money to be able to buy food, to be able to eat. He needed money to be able to, to survive and to live. Because he was lame, he couldn't work. He had to have money to provide for himself. The man thought that he needed money. And yet, as we'll see in verse 6, he needed something way better than money. He needed full restoration. Oftentimes, we judge our needs based on our circumstances. We judge our needs based on our circumstances. For instance, if you have a difficult work situation where your boss is condescending or unrelenting in their expectations for your team, inside, you're probably boiling at some point, if I just had to guess. <laughs> You're probably boiling at some point. You think about how you would do a better job than your boss. In your mind, you begin to put yourself in your boss's position, and you start condescending them in order to pay them back for what they've done to you. You believe that your greatest problem is your boss, and so what's your greatest need? To get a new boss. That's what we, that's what we would think. It's to get a new boss, right? We believe that our greatest need is that we just need to get a new boss, that or we just need to get a new job. Our greatest need, though, is to respond as one who is full of the Spirit rather than one who is full of sin. To trust the Lord by being faithful to the tasks that you're given. Reminding yourself that the Lord is sufficient for such things. That though your boss is this way, we can respond with mercy, and we can actually act constructively toward other folks on our team, other team members. We misidentify our greatest need because we misdiagnose our problem. Rather than being the context for healing, we actually deepen the hurt. When my kids are going crazy at bedtime because they're overtired, I'm tempted to think at that moment, they're the problem. Not getting a nap is the problem. We should have hit nap time today. That's the main problem. And though those are problems, right, my greatest need in that moment is actually to speak and respond is my heavenly father would respond to me. Why? Because I'm the one who has to model the heavenly father to my own kids as a father. Yes, maybe the most constructive thing to do right there is to discipline but I'm not going to discipline in anger. That would be sinful. To teach, but not a, in a self-righteous, condescending, and manipulative way. Brothers and sisters, we can be prone to judge our situation ba based on external circumstances. When the real problem is where? It's within. It's the war that's going on within me. Believing our greatest problem is outside of me rather than within. Our greatest need, though, in those moments, our greatest need is what? It's worship. It's worship when our situation looks helpless. These are the situations that God uses to bring unexpected healing. 
It was this way for the lame beggar, and it's this way for us. The man needed money, but what he really needed was someone who had the power to be able to utterly transform this man's life. That's what he needed the most. In the midst of this helpless situation, we see an unexpected and yet hopeful sign. Point number two, a hopeful sign. Picture the lame man at the temple. He's crying out for money to everyone who passes by. He's not new to this. He went there every day. He knows how to do this. He's crying out person after person after person. He's a veteran. He knows how to beg. Every day, the same thing. Begging for someone to give him more money that he desperately really actually needs Because this man was a regular, people probably just got used to passing him by. And he probably got used to just being passed by. I mean, you know who you are often. Maybe whenever we see folks, we're like, oh, yeah, it's the regular. Yeah, there he is, yeah. We just kind of keep going. We know how that is. Then the day comes when Peter and John are about to enter the temple, and he asks them for money. But rather than just passing them by, Peter and John give him their full attention. I love the words, like, look at us. Like, it was like, okay, right? And you can imagine, he turns around, he's like, all right, finally someone that's going to give me some attention. I mean, it even tells us right there in the text, he was expecting to get something from them. Verse five, so he turned to them, expecting to get something. He's excited. Maybe today's the big day. Maybe they're going to put a little extra money in that coffer. Sweeten the pot a little bit. Maybe today's the day for a big gift. The man's eyes probably lit up. He's excited. But what he was hoping for was not at all what he expected. What he was hoping for was not what he expected. Yet it it was exactly what he needed. Verse 6. But Peter said, I don't have silver and gold. Man's face dejected. The excitement, it fades. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And then notice in the next line, and at once, immediately, instantaneously, right? That's what that's getting at. Instantly, his feet and ankles became strong. He didn't need therapy for a couple of weeks to make sure that he was fully healed hey, you need to go and get some therapy for for a couple weeks just to get healed, Peter and John tell him. That's not what they told him. He was healed instantly. The what? He jumped up. He started to walk. Luke, the physician right here, is using rare medical terms to describe this man's feet and legs coming back into socket. It's like he came alive in that moment. He's giving a medical description of what normally would have taken a long time to heal if ever he would have healed. It happened instantaneously. But how? How did that happen? Well, it wasn't ultimately Peter who healed him. Instead, it was the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that healed him. Jesus is the source and the power behind this man's healing. And Jesus' name speaks to his identity and authority. Name is going to be very prominent in these upcoming weeks, in these chapters. 
Jesus' name, in the name, anybody who calls upon the name. That name is going to be prominent. We're going to see it over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, God's name, Yahweh, reflected his uniqueness to his people, that he alone is God and Lord. Jesus' name is doing the very same thing. He is unique, and he shares that same divine name. This man's healing was evidence that Jesus resurrected from the grave, and he now reigns as Lord over life and death. He's not passively reigning on his throne, but no, Jesus is actively, presently at work in this fallen world through his church, in particular the apostles, who now serve as the leaders of his people. However, we're going to miss the point of this text if we think it's just about this man's being healed physically, as incredible as that is. Nor is it that we have the power to physically go and just heal people in Jesus' name. Okay? I don't think that's normative. Right? We don't see that happening with the rest of the disciples here on out as far as the church goes within other letters. But rather, we're seeing this happen with the apostles. And so I don't think it's normative for the church today I don't think this was prescribed for the church to be doing. I think this is just a description of what was going on. And there's a point to it, which we're going to get at in a minute. However, we miss the point of the text if we think it's just about this man being physically healed or that we can heal in Jesus' name. Healing throughout the scriptures is focused on more than just our physical bodies. It's instead focused on the restoration of the whole person, of that person's whole being to full health. That's what healing is really getting at throughout the scriptures. And that's the picture that we've got here. Notice the hints of resurrection that we get in verses 6 and 7. Peter says to him, get up and walk. And then what does he do? He takes him by the hand. He raises him up. It's as if this man is resurrected from death to life. He is now restored physically, economically. Now he can get up and actually go get a job and work to make money to provide for himself socially. Now he can enter into what everybody else is doing. Spiritually, he's restored. He can now go into the temple and now worship God. This man has found new life that he didn't have. He's a new man. And that's the point. He is fully restored. Only Jesus can give us a new, transformed life. All that we need can be found in him. This visual act, this sign, this miracle points beyond itself to this deeper reality. That's how signs are meant to do. So if you drive to the Buffalo River, you see a sign, and it probably has some kind of windy road down a steep hill. It's telling you what's up ahead. The sign is pointing to something greater, something deeper, something to come. And yet this can only happen because another event happened First, weeks earlier, also at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus was treated like an outcast, crucified outside the city for our sins so that we may have new life in him. He was outside the city so that we may go into the Lord's presence. He became weak so that one day we can become fully strong in him. Friend, Jesus can give you, he can give you new life because he rose from the dead and now reigns as Lord over life and death. His death and resurrection secured for us the hope of full restoration at his return. 
That's what it's secured. That's what the man's healing is meant to point us to. That's why it's a sign. It's meant to point us to a greater day. Cassie just came a minute ago. She read from Isaiah 35. That man's healing and praising God, all of that was foreshadowed hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah, foreshadowing this day where there would be a full restoration of God's people. Those promises began to be fulfilled in Jesus, and now they continue to be fulfilled through the ministry of his disciples. That passage is the present reality in part and our future reality in full. This is what, is, this is what awaits us. And just a word of encouragement for those of you, this is not here, but just a word of encouragement for those of you who are struggling with physical ailments right now, whatever those may be. You can run the gamut. Just a word of encouragement for you, and one I think ought to comfort you. This is a glorious text for you. It is an absolutely glorious text for you. Why is that? Because your physical ailments, diseases, cancer, whatever you want to call it, all of that has an expiration date. It's coming to an end. Those things don't define you. Those things are all going to pass away. And your hope, your hopeful future is absolutely glorious. And it's only going to be like that for how long? For eternity. Isaiah 35 is your reality because Jesus secured it for you through his death and resurrection. That's worth praising God for. And that's a glorious reality that I hope that you will actually take comfort in this week whenever you're frustrated with your physical ailments. All of us are going are to struggle physically. And when that day comes, I hope that you'll go back to Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and receive encouragement by it. And actually, the hope that is going to be yours, that that would comfort your soul. Friends, you can have that hope of restoration. You can have that hope today. You can be reconciled to God and receive the Spirit as the down payment of that future restoration right now by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. We know that it was the faith of the man in Jesus, right, that made him well. That's going to come in two weeks. Maybe you didn't read that far. But it is. Through repentance and faith, this can be your hope. This can be your new reality. No more pain. No more weeping. No more war. No more diseases. No more virus. No more hate. No more weakness. All through repentance and faith in Jesus. Well, this lame man thought he needed money. What he got was a miracle. He began his day being carried to the temple. Now he's jumping and he's leaping into it. He went from lame to new life, from beggar to brother, from sitting outside the temple to leaping over the temple's boundaries, which is massively significant for chapters three through five because what are we seeing? The old temple system just starting to fade away. God's establishing new leaders and where does he meet with his people? He now dwells in them by the gift of the Holy Spirit. All of this through Jesus. In Jesus, we have all we need forever. In Jesus, we have our own hope of healing and full restoration at his return. This healing not only gave evidence to Jesus being both Messiah and Lord, it also actually gave credibility to the church and her leaders as they were performing these miracles. So what does this mean for us? 
practically, what does this mean for us? I think a couple of things. The first thing, meet people where they're at. Meet people where they're at. Peter and John looked directly at this guy. They didn't shy away from him because he had needs, right? They were like, well, you know, he's there every day. I think we'll just kind of pass him by. They didn't shy away from him because of his needs. Instead, it was those very needs that actually qualified this guy to be restored. They met him where he was at. It's often that when we meet people where they're at in their time of need, they're more open to actually hearing about the hope of healing that is found in the gospel. Your neighbors and coworkers who know, right, that you know, that you've built relationships, there are going to be time there's going to be times where they're going to actually confess to you and, and speak to you about various needs going on in their life. Identify those very things when you're ministering to them. Meet them at that need. Bring the gospel to bear whenever they're starting to actually reveal to you what those needs are. And then show them that really what their greatest need is, is for Jesus in that situation. Meet them where they're at. And so we need to begin by deepening our relationships with others. How are we going to know what their needs are and be able to meet them at where their need is if we don't know what those needs are? And so we've got to begin there. Secondly, give what you have. Give what you have. In verse 6, Peter gave the man what he had. That's what, that's what Peter had. That's what he gave him. He didn't give him what he didn't have. He didn't have silver and gold, but what did he give him? The gift of being healed in the name of Jesus. Now, no, I'm not talking about us physically healing people and going around healing people in the name of Jesus, right? That's, that's kind of high-level prosperity gospel stuff right there. That's not what we're into. The apostles were able to heal because Jesus was giving credibility to their ministry as his authorized representatives. That's not normative for us today. We are not apostles. Nowhere does God's promise of full healing in this life, nowhere is that ever found in scripture, that we're going to get full healing in this life. That is the life to come. We see certain promises come to fruition, and we see certain things that begin to indicate those kinds of things, but never in full. That's for the life to come. However, we do give healing to others we do give healing to others because we have the gospel, which is able to heal them spiritually. That's able to heal their soul. And so give what you have. Give, him, give them the gift of healing to be healed, for their soul to be healed on the inside, to secure their hope of full restoration at Jesus' return. Can you imagine that? That's what you give people whenever you share the gospel with them. You give them the hope of full restoration one day. That is incredible. That makes me want to share the gospel. Their soul can be healed. And then that sets in motion. It secures now their day of full healing and restoration. We can give that to people. We can give that to them as we share the gospel. Because it's the power of Christ to save them, not us. Do you view your ministry this way? Do you view your ministry this way? We give healing to people. When we share the gospel. Because not only does it bring healing to their soul, it secures their future restoration. And so share the gospel. Share with neighbors, coworkers, friends, family. Let that serve to motivate us to share Christ. And in doing so, give healing. Number three, this is the last one. 
Be motivated by joy and awe. Be motivated not only by what we saw in, in point two, but also by joy and awe. Notice what this results in. In verse 8, the man is walking, he's leaping, he's praising God. When the gospel we share is received, it changes one's life from one of despair to one of joy. Their life is altered for the better. We share Jesus with others for the joy that ultimately they are going to receive in Christ. Right? This is the very thing that Greg preached a couple weeks ago in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4, right? They're wanting to share the good news of Jesus so that those that they share with will actually come into fellowship with them so that it would be for their joy. And not only their joy, but also even our own joy. Notice that in verses 9 and 10 right there, everyone stands in awe. <laughs> They're astounded at what took place. One of my favorite things about conversion stories is how it impacts those around them, right? You hear about parents not recognizing who their child is because their life has radically changed from who they were before. You see children blown away by their father or mother who now loves Jesus and brings a sense of peace actually to their home when they were the walking on a razor's edge. This is what we have as Jesus followers, and this is what we give that others can receive, a hope of new life in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Hope and awe. Those things can motivate us. We don't have to share Jesus. We get to share Jesus. And these things ought to motivate us. Jesus and all the benefits that he gives through his death and resurrection are what we share. Are you going to take part in that? Will you take part in that? I pray that you will. Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you because your mercies are new for us even just this afternoon. Lord, we give praise to you that you have the power, yes, to physically heal people, even today, miraculously. But Lord, we know that this man really serves as a picture of future restoration that is promised to all who repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus. Lord, we pray that as a congregation, as OBC, that we would be faithful to go about seeking to meet people where they're at, that we would give what we would ha- that we have, or that we would give the hope of healing in the gospel. And Lord, we pray that we would begin to see joy and awe come to those who receive Christ and even the surrounding community watching those who receive Christ. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.